Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are headed into the home stretch of the college football season. The World Cup is getting underway. Basketball and hockey are in full swing. And of course, we have all the pro football action you could ask for. Use our promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, with the link in the description to this episode to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts good morning good evening good afternoon or good night However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Week 9 NFL Monday here on the Take It Easy podcast. Every Monday, we've got NFL Monday coming at you, breaking down anything and everything that happened around the league. This week, the biggest sports stories of the weekend, at least personally for me, were Tennessee, Georgia, and the World Series ending. We're going to save the World Series for tomorrow. This is NFL Monday. I won't sneak baseball in there, but I will sneak college football into the NFL Monday, which I do every now and again. We're going to talk about Tennessee, Georgia. We're going to talk about Justin Fields and the Chicago Bears. As as always, every NFL Monday is one NFL Monday closer to Nathaniel Hackett getting fired and I guess also Josh McDaniels at this point. We're one NFL Monday closer to Josh McDaniels getting fired. I don't know. I guess with Josh McDaniels, my thing is just like, you could get rid of him. You could not get rid of him. I think I could defend it either way. But we're at least one NFL Monday closer to Nathaniel Hackett getting fired. And every NFL Monday is one NFL Monday closer to that next goal now that Matt Rule's been fired and now that Kenny Pickett's firmly the starter of the Steelers, which is the joke we were making for the first five weeks of the season. This NFL... Sunday, I guess we'll say there were 10 games, 11 if you count uh, Tennessee and Kansas City, but we record this in between the afternoon games ending and Sunday night football. Kansas City and Tennessee are both five and two, but Kansas City's a 14 and a half point favorite, which I think is just magnificent. Records don't always matter. Wins are not a quarterback stat, blah, 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 but we'll see what happens with the Kansas City game. But 10 games today, they were all close. They, except for like two of them, they were all like barn burner matchups. And even the blowouts were still fun. Like um, Cincinnati, another reminder that they are really good offense. Every few weeks, I just need that reminder that Cincinnati is a really, really good offense. They did it to Atlanta. They kind of did it to Miami, that game that Tua injured his neck and head. I just need that reminder every few weeks that Cincinnati is, in fact, a really good offense because what Cincinnati and the Chargers both still have going for them, and and by the way, that Chargers-Falcons game was stupid fun. Um, Stupid funny, but that's kind of what the Falcons are at this point is 
What Cincinnati and the Chargers have going for them is they still have Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert. And I know Justin Herbert's playing with torn rib cartilage. I know that Jamar Chase is out four to six weeks at this point. By virtue of having Joe Burrow and Jamar and uh, just and Justin Herbert, they're going to be able to make the wild card in the AFC this year. I don't know how much that buys them in the long run, but being a wild card team this year is pretty good, especially because like the middle of the pack in the AFC is. Uh, just as mediocre as everyone else in the league in the second lowest offensive season in the league. So even the games that were blowouts today, still kind of interesting. Um, the big game of the day was the Rams and the Bucks. It was the game that everyone was selling at the start of the day. It was Jim Nance, Tony Romo's game. A lot of teams on bye this week. The Eagles played on Thursday against the Texans. So like similar to last week where it was like Kansas City and the Chargers were on bye. And also the Sunday night football game was Buffalo. And, uh, you know, there just wasn't a whole lot of super duper duper interesting stuff. Similar this week, just a lot of bad matchups. But Rams and Bucks was kind of the fun one coming into the week. We nailed it on the preview that we did with our, our friend Juju Talk Sports over at the Slump Buster, where we're basically, we called it a mid off basically between the Rams and the Bucks. The over under was like 40 points, and most of the bets were coming in on the over. Like you were, you were smart to bet the under on 40 for that game. And it was Bucks minus two and a half. And lo and behold, with a Kirk Cousins purgatory comeback, Tom Brady ended up winning the game by exactly three points it was 16 to 13 exactly what vegas predicted it would be when they picked bucks two and a half just excellent excellent job on the predicting right there for vegas odds on the bucks and rams game but anyways tampa won that game and We've talked about Tampa a bit before, like if we're doing the X's and O's breakdown of Tampa, they're a team that is comparatively to last year's Tampa teams, they don't have the same offensive line protection and you subtract uh, the receivers that have gone in and out and Tampa running game is a byproduct of offensive line and Tampa has had a really bad running game this year, which is a byproduct of their offensive line falling apart and Tom Brady this year has played to the equivalent of what Kirk Cousins normally is, which is a tier three quarterback. And you've heard me saying for years, Tom Brady kind of exists in tier two and a half. He is kind of an entity in and of itself at this point, because there is no precedent for what he is doing. And when the Bucks have an amazing offensive line with uh, Ali Marpet and Ryan Jensen and Alex Kappa and Donovan Smith, and uh, they drafted, what was his name? Tristan Wirfs at the top of the draft last year or I guess two years ago now, they have a really, really great offensive line. And then you subtract four of those people that I mentioned, Marpet, Jensen, Kappa. Uh, they've had injuries in and out for Tristan Wirfs. And Tampa can't run the football. And when they can't run the football, it puts more pressure on Tom Brady to throw the ball. And he doesn't have the same connection to Scotty Miller and uh, Otten, even though Otten, the sixth round tight end who sounds like a made up player, uh, he doesn't have that same connection that he had to Rob Gronkowski or I guess to a certain extent Antonio Brown, although I don't think the loss of Antonio Brown's hurting the Bucks that much. The Bucks are a team that has a really middle of the road offense and a really great defense and that'll be good enough to get them to the playoffs where they will lose in the wild card and Tom Brady will leave because Tom Brady, again, wanted to leave, got Bruce Arians fired, and then when he couldn't find his way to the Dolphins, ended up coming back to Tampa. So that's like the analysis I can give you on Tampa. The bigger part that's more interesting to me from, I mean, coming out of this game, like it was a boring game until the very end. Um, the, the Rams, 
the Rams offense we knew was kind of broken. We've talked about before how dependent they are on Cooper Cup and the the fact that it's a more of a skill problem than it is like a scheming problem for the Rams at this point. And you've heard me just say week after week, Matthew Stafford just looks broken broken and slowly but steadily he's healed himself but it's like when one injury piles on top of another and you don't give the body time to recover it just becomes a nightmare combined with the fact that the Rams have offensive line problems I guess I could have started off by saying hey you want to know why the Rams are three and five and gonna miss the playoffs and why Tampa is gonna be the the AFC South equivalent of a four seed that gets smoked by Dallas in the wild card it's because their offensive line is really broken. The offensive line of the Rams is a significantly diminished product, and they haven't been able to run the ball for three seasons. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive line is damaged goods, and some players retired, similar to the Rams. Whitworth retired. Uh, Ryan Jensen retired on the other side. Ali Marpet gets hurt. Note Boom gets hurt. Uh, you subtract Tristan Wirfs. You subtract Rob Havenstein. And lo and behold, the teams both start to fall apart on offense, and you have a 16-13 game where Vegas set the over-under at 39 and a half. And you hit the under pretty easily. And we kind of said when we were previewing this with Juju, hey, it's going to probably hit the under easy because like 70% of the money is coming in on the over. So Vegas is betting on a 16-13 type of game. And that's the type of game that Tampa wants to play because Tampa's got a really good defense and they have a really middle-of-the-road offense. And they'll be good enough to win the NFC South, even though Atlanta has a really fun offense and a really shitty defense. The only difference is Atlanta is ranked, I think, 10th right now in offensive DVOA, and Tampa is ranked like 17th, so it's not that dramatic of a difference between Atlanta and Tampa Bay. Not enough to overcompensate for the fact that Tampa has a top four defense in the NFL, and Atlanta has a bottom four defense in the NFL. It's pretty hard to overcompensate for that difference with an offense led by Marcus Mariota, even though the Falcons' offense has been better than Tampa's this year. It's going to be really hard for them to overcompensate. Tampa has an elite defense. Falcons have one of the five worst defenses in the NFL. What also interested me on a macro level perspective coming into this game, and I guess coming out of this game, is Sean McVay. Because in the kind of rumors around the side situation, I think it was Dov Kleiman, who's one of these... People with inside information who doesn't work for a major source, like he has information because he has inside sources and is famous on Twitter. I think he's got like 300,000 followers on Twitter because his information has been solid. I don't know if that exact number is correct, but um, Dov Kleiman was pointing out that Sean McVay feels tied to this core of the Rams team. So Aaron Donald... Jalen Ramsey, Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup, the stars of this Rams team are the people that Sean McVay feels tied to, and if the Rams reached a place where they would move off of those players, Sean McVay would retire. And this is not the first time we've heard retirement talks around Sean McVay. If you remember when the Super Bowl was going on and Aaron Donald was partially posturing for a contract and partially considering retirement... Um, there were talks about Sean McVay going, being courted by Amazon or Sean McVay going to Fox. Him moving into early retirement was something that was not 
it would have been surprising, but it wasn't totally out of the realm of conversation. Like, say, Mike Tomlin walking away from the Steelers at this point. Like, it was not totally out of the question in that way. And Sean McVay has been connected to some sort of, like, what is the next step of his career? And the next step of his career is moving away from football. And the fact that that got brought up again this week, because... At this point, basically, Aaron Donald is going to be playing football for a contract. We talked about this after the Super Bowl when it was like pretty solidly confirmed this could be Aaron Donald's last game. And the Rams paid him $32 million at 30 years old to come back and play defensive tackle for the Rams. And he has been great this year. He just hasn't been Aaron Donald levels of production. Like his pro football focus grade is still great. It's just like not the same impact and part of it is that the Rams offense is just so poor and the Rams defense is so top heavy that they haven't like Troy Hill came back and they've they've uh, developed I, I can't remember the name of the sixth round corner who's really good for them but they've they found a couple pieces but overall the Rams defense is talent wise less than it was last year when they were ranked in the top 10 this year, they're ranked 21st in the league in DVOA defense this year. So this is a defense that has fallen behind the curve a little bit. And I think it's because they don't... I mean, we saw it at the end of the Tampa game a little bit where defense ran out of gas. Donald wasn't getting in Brady's face. Ramsey wasn't making the big plays at the end. And the defense ran out of gas and there was no... There was nothing left there. I don't know if that's like indicative of a broader part of the Rams, but we know the Rams defense isn't super duper great this year. We know the Rams are going to miss the playoffs. And the thing that was most fascinating to me as it related to the McVay point is Sean McVay is the son of a coach with the San Francisco 49ers. Sean McVay is one of these born and raised football guys. And you kind of have to be at a certain point to be the wonder kid at 30 years old and getting an NFL head coaching job because you got your first coaching job at 23 years old, first coordinator job at 28. And then by 30 years old, you're being hired to run the Los Angeles Rams. When you're this wonder kid type of situation, it puts a lot of pressure on the dream and a lot of stress on the dream. I've heard um, Andrew Whitworth talk before about how he's had conversations with Sean McVay where he's describing the feeling of panic attacks. And Sean McVay's hearing this from Whitworth and he's like surprised and asking him, wait, you get those two? That like this this connection between the two of them of like, hey, we're crazy football people and we're recognizing the stress and the strain on this job that comes from it. I mean, everyone deals with panic attacks and uh, people deal with stress weighing so much that it causes physical illness. If you don't experience it personally, you're probably one person removed in your life from knowing someone who deals with that. And if you have skills of empathy and you have an empathetic mindset it's easy to uh, relate to someone in that situation and feel for them and the amount of stress that they put their body under especially in a high stress job like what we're talking about where Sean McVay is the head coach of a billion dollar corporation and someone who is expected to be smarter and more innovative and adaptive than anyone else it puts a lot of stress on the dream and so when Sean McVay is this person who from childhood has been preparing to be 
in essence, a coach, when your father is a coach, when you get into these coaching spheres in football very early in your life, because remember, like, I don't know how many people know this story or have been paying attention the past few years, but Sean McVay was a wide receiver at Miami of Ohio. His dad played football at Indiana and his grandpa was a coach for a whole lot of years in Ohio and then he went to Memphis and then ultimately ended up being the vice president of the 49ers during all five of the 49ers championships and so that's Sean McVay's first entrance into the NFL sphere is by being part of a football family and so when you have the weight of expectation not necessarily from him and himself, the expectation he puts on himself, but from childhood being put on this singular path and advancing at every single stage with flying colors, it puts a lot of stress on the dream itself. And if Sean McVay walked away from being a coach at 40 years old, I think that would make all the sense in the world because at this point, he's the wonder kid who's accomplished everything and is clearly burning himself out at this job. I mean, we've talked before about how he was hired to build an offense around Todd Gurley. And then, you know, he gets there and all of a sudden Todd Gurley transforms into this greatest run. I mean, I call him the greatest running back I've ever seen in those first two years with McVay. And then Gurley's body falls apart and... They have to pivot because they accidentally gave Jared Goff a a big contract extension and he wasn't the player that they were banking on him being. And the Los Angeles Rams had to totally change the way they did things. And Sean McVay had to totally change his offense. Last year, I called them the anti-McVay Rams because they were the best team in the league and they never ran the football. They They were one of three teams with an above 500 record that won time of possession. And time of possession is loosely correlated with passing more than or running more than passing if you have more time of possession. Their offense was so predicated on Stafford to cup, and they they just didn't have the running game to complement what they were doing, that McVay had to totally rethink and change the way that he ran offense in order to best adapt that system. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Even if you know it's the right thing, completely learning new skills and changing your offense is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And it was the right thing to do within the context of that situation. I just look at what the Rams are now, and they're so predicated on Stafford, whose body is breaking down this year, and they're predicated on Cup, that I would totally understand Sean McVay walking away from this situation the same way I understand Sean Payton walking away from that situation in New Orleans. They went all in on those two seasons when the Saints had Drew Brees in 2018 and 2000, I'm sorry, 2019 and 2020. And after that ended, they left being they, Drew Brees and Sean Payton, they left. And now the Saints are left with whatever remnants of the team they have as they try and rebuild something new with a new coach and a new quarterback. I mean, they don't really have a long-term quarterback, but they're, they're left with the remnants of what's left. Aaron Rodgers was getting ready to dip out of there in Green Bay, and he ended up coming back and look at the remnants of the team that he's left with now with a defense ranked 25th in the league this year and no receivers. And now, you know, AJ Aaron Jones is in a walking boot. 
And also, Eric Stokes is in a walking boot. And also, Romeo Dobbs is in a walking boot. All three of them had walking boots and crutches at the end of that game against the Lions. It was kind of wild. But you see what's left of that Green Bay team that's clearly not good enough to win. And Aaron Rodgers is still around for the final years of his career to kind of be in that middle-of-the-road team because they were $100 million over the cap. And the Rams did the same thing. They won, and it wouldn't surprise me if Donald and Sean McVay walked away from that situation with their heads held high and Sean McVay walked away from coaching altogether because unless you really love the process, Sean McVay has accomplished everything at 37 years old. He went to the Super Bowl with a team built around Todd Gurley and then with only, with 75, I've talked about how amazing this is. We wrote a story about it last year. With 75% of Jeff Fisher's players, Sean McVay went to a Super Bowl with players who went 7-9 and and 5-11 and with Jeff Fisher, went to the Super Bowl two years later with 75% of those players, then three years later went back to the Super Bowl with a team where only Aaron Donald, Johnny Hecker, and a practice squad Tyler Higby were the only three players who were on Jeff Fisher's last team. Totally recreated the roster with just him and Aaron Donald and, and Tyler Higby. Completely retooled the roster and went back to a Super Bowl. And this time won the Super Bowl. What left is there to prove from a coaching standpoint if you're Sean McVay and you don't love the process of coaching. Bill Belichick clearly loves the process of coaching, and he too follows a similar path. He's the son of a former coach at Navy, prodigy type of coach who ends up getting the defensive coordinator job for the Giants and stays there for close to a decade before he gets his first coaching job. Like he was a he was in his 30s when he first gets that coordinator job, and then ultimately he spent a long time there with the Giants, but you look at what Sean McVay's path has followed. I don't know if Sean McVay loves the process of coaching because I don't know who Sean McVay is. I don't know him personally. I don't know what his personality type is. Unless you really love the process and it's the thing that you want to continue doing for 10 to 20 years or even for five years, if you don't love the process, what is the point of continuing at this point other than no one ever gives up that job? And when you so much stress, and, and this is a thing that happens again with wonder kids or prodigies or whatever you want to point to, when there's so much stress on the dream, it becomes incredibly difficult once you reach the mountain and realize that that's it because then the process becomes so monotonous it's the reason why like we see Ashley Barty retire at 25 years old in tennis or you see play you see tennis stars who are the top I mean they're top in their 13 14 15 age groups they quit the sport at 18 19 because in those individual sports and those leadership positions it's incredibly difficult to maintain that level of power when you've accomplished everything in a career in a shortened span because of your abilities and because of your being so young when you first get into the position in the first place. And I think that that makes all the sense in the world if Sean McVay wanted to walk away from the Rams and walk away from coaching altogether. Maybe there's a job that would bring him out later or maybe he moves into like a general manager type of role. He can do pretty much anything he wants at this point 
which if you have had the success that he's had and you can do anything you want and you're only 37 years old, you've got to really love the process of coaching if you're going to keep doing it. And I would totally understand if Sean McVay looks up and one day and decides that he's ready to walk away from coaching because that's not the way that he wants to spend the next five to 10 years of his life. Granted, he spent so much time working to this goal and he obviously has to have some sort of care and and love for the process because you don't become that type of success without it. I just don't know if it's enough where the stress and the toil that comes along with it and just the stress on the dream itself because of being such a, a prodigy type person when you've already accomplished that level of success, you've got to really, really love the process in order to keep doing it. And so I would totally understand if Sean McVay looks up and decides he has options upon options upon options and decides that he wants to go do something else, especially given that the personal connection that he has to guys like Whitworth and like he has to Stafford and like he has to Donald. Because at this point, again, I mentioned it with Donald. Donald's just playing for a contract at this point. Like we said it after the Super Bowl. 31 years old, nothing left to prove for Aaron Donald at this point. And by the way, he's reached the age where players start to decline, especially when you've had seven, eight, nine years of your career. And Donald was picked in 2014. So you're looking at, at this point, this is the ninth season of Aaron Donald's career. This is when you start to see a drop off in play. Not that he's going to not be a pro bowler, but you see that Aaron Donald's not the greatest defensive tackle in the NFL anymore because he's taken a shit ton of hits to his body and a shit ton of damage to his body. And that was part of why he was talking about retiring at the end of the Super Bowl. And, you know, Michelle Tafoya is asking him on the podium, is this going to be your last football game? Because the rumors are so potent that he's going to retire if they win the Super Bowl. And then he, we, there's retirement talk for three months, and then he gets $30-plus plus million a year from the Rams based on past accomplishments. And so Aaron Donald's playing for a contract at this point. Whitworth walked away. Matthew Stafford is playing for a contract at this point. It would totally make sense if Sean McVay looks up one day and says, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go do something else now. Hey Georgia, are you looking forward to the national championship game? Of course you are. But you know what else you could be looking for? A new, used, lightly used, upgrade or downgrade on your car. If you're looking for the best options out there on the market, then you need to come on down to the one and only Stenson Bennett Kia Chevy Subaru Honda Volkswagen of Georgia. That's right, not only is Stenson Bennett the quarterback of the national championship contending Georgia Bulldogs, but he's also here to give you the best deal. You see, Stenson has no real future prospects in the NFL, and as a walk-on football player at the University of Georgia, Stenson is here to sell you all of the wonderful new used trade-ins, slightly upgrade or slightly downgraded cars at your disposal. Get a fantastic 2022 off your latest purchase or trade-in if you get in before the national championship game. And if Georgia wins the national championship game, which they will not, you will get a whopping 22% off 
championship bonus on a brand new Kia, Chevy, Subaru, Honda, or Volkswagen. So come on in today to the one and only Stenson Bennett Kia, Chevy, Subaru, Honda, Volkswagen today. All right, everybody, who's ready to head on down to Stetson, Bennett, Kia, Chevrolet, Mitsubishi, Hyundai of local Athens area. Stetson, Bennett, and Georgia beat Tennessee up good on Saturday in the biggest college football game since the last biggest college football game. Shout out to Razor Rosenthal. Shout out to Razor, who said that he would take Georgia, and he'd feel pretty comfortable about Georgia on the eight-point money line. And lo and behold, Razor got it right. Because Georgia won 27-13, and it wasn't even that close. Because Tennessee scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter, but it was 27-6 for a good portion of that game. They were down 18 at half. They were down 21 at the end of the third. That was a rout, a rout by the Georgia Bulldogs. By the way, just some stats from that game to throw at you. Like, Tennessee had more first downs than Georgia. That would be 21 first downs for Tennessee and 18 for Georgia. Tennessee ran more plays than Georgia. That would be 75 plays for Tennessee and 62 for Georgia. Tennessee and Georgia had the same number of turnovers in this game. That would be two for Tennessee and two for Georgia. Why was it 27-6? Good question. Uh, Tennessee averaged four yards per play on the game, and Georgia averaged six and a half yards per play on the game. Because when Georgia scored points, it was Tennessee's defense pulled some bullshit. It was Georgia 45-yard play to Kenny McIntosh. 38-yard touchdown to Lad McConkey, which again, Lad McConkey still sounds like what an old person says to describe getting hit in the penis. Someone got hit in the Lad McConkeys. They they hit McConkey for a 38-yard touchdown. Again, 45-yard play to Kenny McIntosh. Uh, I think at one point they had a 27-yard run mixed in there too, but Georgia basically like had big plays. Actually, at the end of the game, Georgia had a, I think, a 40-yard pass play that just went right through the hands of a receiver, too. Like, the the score that would have made it 34-13, to ball went straight through the arms of the receiver, too. So, that was one where they could have added another garbage-time touchdown and probably gone up to, like, seven yards of play. Because Georgia may have only ran 62 plays, but they averaged six and a half yards per play on that game against Tennessee. The big if was always, yes, Tennessee is the number one scoring offense. You know, has the number two scoring defense, probably now the number one scoring defense, the Georgia Bulldogs, because we talked about this in our preview for the Tennessee-Georgia game, which is Georgia exists in this space similar to Tennessee, I'm sorry, similar to 2012 Alabama, similar to 2015 Ohio State similar to 2020 Clemson, which is they have been a tier one or a tier two program now for six consecutive seasons, like top eight finishes every single year for six consecutive seasons for Georgia now. And now Georgia has reached a place where they've been good enough for so long that they are getting the four and a half and five star players on defense similar to how Alabama and Ohio State used to get those players 
in the 2010s, like middle time of the 2010s, where they were getting the 30 to 35, four and a half to five star recruits in the entire country, like the people we think of as first round picks, Georgia's getting six or seven of those guys in each draft class or each recruiting class. And if you're getting six to seven of those guys and most of them are staying within the program, you could argue that like one transfers and another transfers in. So let's argue the transfer portal kind of like wipes itself out a little bit in this equation, just for the sake of simplicity. If Georgia's bringing in six to seven, four and a half and five star guys per recruiting cycle, then they reach a situation where after three years of recruiting, you have four and a half and five star guys who are backups to the starters who are four and a half and five stars. And that's what Georgia has in this game where like, hey, they lose their defensive line, rebuild it with recruits in the transfer portal. Uh, Their first round linebacker goes out for this game against Tennessee. Didn't look like they missed him much. This is the imposing defense that we're used to with Alabama. And if you want to hear more talk about Alabama, um, we watched the overtime of Alabama and LSU on Wired Up. It's the podcast right before this one if you want talk about that. And talk about Clemson shitting the bed against Notre Dame and like macro college football playoff perspective. That's the place to check it out. But Georgia's reached this interesting place where it's been six years for Georgia. And I know I'm doing a similar podcast to what we did on Thursday, but just re-emphasizing the point because Georgia only has the best scoring defense in college football this year instead of last year where they had one of the greatest defenses in the history of college football. And they've reached that place where the recruits keep going to Georgia. You might look up two years from now and they might not have that same level of recruiting prowess. That's what happened to Clemson. They went through two or three cycles of recruits and then the recruits, the the four and a half and five star guys stopped going to Clemson. In large part, a lot of them ended up going to Georgia as the great irony, the, the Dexter Lawrences who went to Clemson or the, um, the Isaiah Simmons, the guys who were like, first round picks projected out of high school and then end up getting drafted in the first round three years later those guys ending up going to Georgia and Ohio State instead of going to Clemson is how you look up and now Clemson's a tier two program for the second consecutive season all of their coordinators have left their athletic director left to go to Miami this offseason and Dabo Swinney's next because whenever Nick Saban retires, Dabo's going to go coach the University of Alabama and the next four years are going to be a holdover period as Dabo waits for that Saban retirement so then he can slide in for the head coaching job at Alabama. If you know Dabo's backstory, he was a walk-on at Alabama. He's postured for the Alabama job in the past like Dabo is next in line to take that job from Saban since Clemson's never going to get back to the place they were six years ago. It was just a lightning-in-a-bottle, perfect confluence of events that get Clemson to that place. But for all the greatness that Clemson was, that lightning-in-a-bottle team that went to four national championship games and won two national championships, they did all of that within six years. This is the sixth year of Georgia being a Tier 1 or a Tier 2 program. They made the national championship game for the first time with this current core with Kirby and the the relative coaching staff. I know Dan Lanning just went to Oregon, but like 2017 was the year that they went to the national championship game against Tua. That was six years ago. 
They 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. If you watch that pattern of Georgia, like I was talking about, this has been six years of consistent dominance from Georgia. And they're by beating Tennessee in the emphatic fashion that they did, Georgia is in the college football playoff. We talked about that on Thursday when we were previewing the game. Like Georgia and Tennessee was a win and you're in situation for the playoff. It is the loser still has a path to the playoff, and that path is super clear now for Tennessee. Now that Bama is out, and now that Clemson is out, Tennessee's going to make the playoff. Like, no, as long as they don't shit the bed against Missouri, Tennessee is 75 to 80% sure going to make the playoff, probably as the three seed. Tennessee is in at this point. But what Georgia buys them is they are going to be in no matter what by beating Tennessee, and they're going to get to be the number one or the number two seed, depending on what happens when they, I guess, now play LSU in the SEC championship game. Um, But for those of you who want to play the game of what happens if LSU beats Georgia, let's just not do that right now. Let's let's just not play that game with LSU and Georgia, um, because it's one thing to project that out with Alabama. It's a whole nother thing to play that game with LSU, who's going to be like 12-point underdogs. I guess it's a neutral field, so 10-point underdogs against Georgia in that SEC championship game. Way too far out to start projecting that one. And it's weird that with all of this, it's been Stetson Bennett Kia that has handed been handed the torch of the uh, the offense that again I'm still surprised the fifth largest scoring offense in college football this season which doesn't match like hey they're the best team in the country but they're the fifth best scoring offense technically that's below expectation but I mean come on like being realistic Georgia having the fifth best scoring offense in college football is something a lot of us would probably take a step back at if we saw that number pop up and I just think it's so fascinating to watch that play out because again six and a half yards per play on offense against Tennessee. Granted, Tennessee's defense is the the worst unit on the field in that game on Saturday, and Tennessee's defense will probably be the reason that they won't win a national championship and will probably lose to Ohio State if they play them in the college football playoff. It's and the offense is, I mean, Tennessee, again, like I talked about this with Juju, like Tennessee's the new shiny object. It's the new fun. We talked about this with Razor. Tennessee's the new fun, shiny object. And this is six years of Georgia being at this place that we come to expect with Tennessee being, they've got one national championship. They've made another national championship game in the in-between. They didn't make the playoff, but it wasn't like they were going eight and four. They were in 2019, the fifth seed in 2020, the sixth seed, like it wasn't like they were just getting blown out of the water the other years. They've been a top eight team, which means they've been a tier one or a tier two program for six consecutive seasons now. And they've built up that st- that stable base to beat a team like Tennessee, beat a team like Alabama last year in the national championship game, who we point to and say those have been the second best teams in the SEC pretty consistently for about... I mean, Tennessee this year and Alabama for the five years before that, if you take out that one LSU season, like the LSU, Bama and Tennessee have consistently been the number one teams in the SEC. And now Georgia has established itself firmly as that number one because they have the vaunted defense that we used to fear when it came to Alabama. And 
whereas Tennessee can put up 52 points against Bama, they put up six against Georgia. And that's a dramatic example in small sample size, certainly. But I think the underlying point is correct when we're talking about Georgia's had six years of consistent stability and building up tier one and tier two level recruiting classes to the point where they're now defending national champions, probably going to win it again and sitting in that same tier one category that Alabama did in 2014, Ohio State did in 2015-16, and where Clemson was at the very end of that run. We'll see what happens in two years with Georgia, but for now, like they are totally, totally dominant, and they've built up a stable base of four and a half and five stars that will be the reason they probably play Ohio State for the national championship and probably beat Ohio State for a second straight national championship, which I guess means it's a dynasty, right? Because you got, y'all are saying you got to win two championships to be a dynasty and all that bullshit. Like, congratulations, I guess back-to-back national championships would establish Georgia as a dynasty in some people's mind. But even if they just get back to the national championship, that's playing in three championship games in six years. It's pretty freaking remarkable. Hey, that Dolphins-Bears game was really fun. I wasn't anticipating that one being like the most fun game of the week. Because again, Bucks-Rams, probably the most consequential game of the week. Dolphins-Bears, the most fun game of the week by far. That game was awesome. And I had two choices there. I could have gone with the Bears Still Suck song, or I could have gone with the Miami Dolphins Victory song, which again, I love pointing out that T-Pain fight song that was made in 2008 now 14 years ago the Miami Dolphins have not won a playoff game since that song was made that was actually the most fun game of the week so I went with positive Dolphins because the what I want to talk about from Dolphins Bears is oh my god Justin Fields looks absolutely amazing at football not to say Tua didn't look absolutely amazing at football Tua looks like a team with Tua looks like he plays on a team with an incredibly great receiving core. Terry Kill already has a thousand receiving yards on the season because, like I said last week, every week is like Terry Kill had 23 catches for 380 yards and zero touchdowns. Except this week he did have a touchdown, but normally it's like 380 yards but no touchdowns for Terry Kill. He's going to have 2,000 yards maybe this season. He might break the record that Cooper Cup set last year because it's a 17-game season and all that, and offense is way up. But I do want to talk about the Bears, actually, because the the Bears... Oh, wait, I remember where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, so Tua looks like a quarterback of a team that has a really, really good receiving core and a very solid offensive line that allows them to run the football slightly better than what the expectation is for that team, which is, I expect a team with that running back room to be the worst in the NFL, and they're only like 24th in rushing in the NFL, so they're not awful. 
I mean, they're bad, but they're not as awful as I thought the Dolphins would be, which was worst in the league rushing because they don't have any running backs on that team. But they got rid of Chase Edmonds and Miles Gaskin, so good for you for acknowledging your mistakes six weeks into the season. I do want to talk about the Bears, though. The, the Bears are a team that at this time last year, literally this week last year, we put an embargo on the Chicago Bears where I said that I would not talk about the Chicago Bears until September of this season. And the reason I said that is because we knew they were going to fire Matt Nagy and they were going to hire some coach to replace him who, you know, we have no idea whether he's good or not. And I didn't know who it was going to be. You could have told me the first day of the season who the coach of the Bears was going to be, and I would have all the information that I needed. And lo and behold, it ended up being Matt Eberflus. You could have literally told me going into the first day of the season. So say like from November of last year until September of this year, I said, okay, Matt Nagy obviously got fired. Who is the new coach of the Bears? And you told me Matt Eberflus. I would be like, oh, okay, cool. No idea if he's a good coach or not, but he's the coach. I knew they weren't going to keep Allen Robinson. We said that in November last year. Weren't going to keep Allen Robinson, and they were just going to replace him with a cheaper veteran who wouldn't add or subtract anything from the team. I don't really know if they did that. I mean, they kind of added Nikhil Harry, but like that wasn't exactly what I was thinking of when I said that they were going to get rid of Allen Robinson and replace him with a cheaper veteran. I mean, maybe you could point to like Byron Pringle, I guess, but I don't even think he's getting targets anymore for the Bears. But I mean, they did, they kind of just subtracted Allen Robinson and didn't add anything to the team. And then the other part you could point to is the only interesting storyline from the Bears is how good is Justin Fields? And we wouldn't be able to answer that question until he played football games, so there was no point in spending all offseason talking about whether Justin Fields was better or not, because we just had no idea. We need him to play games in order to answer that question. And now we've seen Justin Fields play nine games, and dude, he looks really, really good at football. Like, he looks really good at football. And we knew Justin Fields was great. I mean, Blake Jude and I were vindicated because we were like, why the bleep? Actually, why the fuck would anyone take Mac Jones over Justin Fields? Why is this even a conversation? He was so good in college. Blake Jude had him over Trey Lance and Zach Wilson on his scouting grades in 2021. And I kind of agreed with him because it's Justin Fields and he was amazing in college. Five-star quarterback prospect, goes to Ohio State and almost wins a Heisman Trophy. Like, of course this dude is amazing at football. And I'm watching him go to the Bears and thinking the Bears are going to ruin his career a little bit. And I'm watching Chicago today against Miami and I watched them. I mean, they come up on the red zone. So like I've seen Chicago games this year, but there was one other game that I was watching closely for Chicago. I'm trying to remember which one it was now. It was, uh, they got blown out. I remember in the game. Oh, I guess the Cowboys last week, I I watched part of that. Oh, it was the, uh, the Packers game. I watched them play against the Packers on Sunday Night Football a little bit, and I was watching those games, and even though they lost, I was I was looking at it and thinking, man, Justin Fields is doing the right things. The offense looks at least a tad bit competent, and today they kind of put it all together. Like, they don't have a talented team at all, but Justin Fields put up 178 rushing yards and 120 and three passing touchdowns and 123 passing yards on 28 attempts like the accuracy wasn't perfect but 
I mean, I was just watching it and it was like, wow, he is really, really good at running the football and really, really good at making plays happen. And I mean, the Justin Fields has looked really good this season. And that's the thing that I could point to and say, like, there's at least optimism there for what the Bears are going to become. And they made the interesting move last week and we touched on it ever so briefly when it came to the trade deadline last week. I think it was uh, Wednesday last week. We kind of just tapped on a bunch of the trade deadline moves, but flipping Roquan Smith for Chase Claypool in essence, because they gave up, they got the Ravens second rounder and the Ravens fifth rounder for Roquan. And then they gave up their second round pick for Claypool and the Ravens are going to finish with a better record than the Bears. So you could argue the gap between those two picks is worth the fifth round pick. Like they basically flipped... Roquan Smith for Chase Claypool at the trade deadline, which I think is really interesting because Chase Claypool at least looks like a wide receiver one. And he looks like a wide receiver one in the sense that they don't have shit at the wide receiver position. So like unless they pulled up with Justin Jefferson or unless they pulled up with a star receiver like I don't even know Cooper Cup or some bullshit but like if they pulled up with a star receiver that would certainly help Justin Fields' development. If you give him absolutely butt-ass nothing well then that's going to obviously hurt his development. So having Chase Claypool at least looking like a wide receiver one is going to help make things a little bit more stable for a guy who has the same completion percentage over his first two seasons as Drew fucking Locke. At least it looks somewhat competent at this point. Like, at least before he... I mean, he ended up running the ball a lot in this game, but before today, he had a 58% completion percentage on the season, most of that coming from the start of the year. But if you look at the last five games, it's 71% against the Vikings. That was his best game of the season. 51% against the Commanders. That's not great. 61% against the Patriots, above his average. 73% against the Cowboys. Last week, they scored 29 points. He had a 120 passer rating. And then this week, he had 60% completion percentage, but he also had a 106 passer rating plus 200 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown and three plays where it was like third and eight and he used his legs to create first downs the way you see Jalen Hurts do it, or the way that you see, I hate to say Lamar Jackson because it looks different when it's Lamar Jackson, but using the skill set of Justin Fields to your advantage because he can just like, let's say Kyler Murray. Like Kyler Murray can roll and make plays happen at the end, or Mahomes can roll and make plays happen. Like that's what Justin Fields looked like against the Dolphins. The offense looked really, really good, and it was mostly because Justin Fields had 300 yards of offense and the entire team didn't have 400 yards of offense. So he was responsible for over 75% of their offense. Most of it was running because, again, they had, I think, 300 rushing yards as a team in that game. Let me double check to make sure. They had they had 252 rushing yards as a team. 178 of those were Justin Fields. They had 368 total yards of offense. 368, Justin Fields had 301 of them. That's (laughs) rushing and passing. Justin Fields had 301 total yards of offense. The Bears as a team had 360. That's crazy. 
And considering that most of it was rushing, it makes the stats look even crazier for Justin Fields as one of the best games of the weekend. And I know they lose, but the Bears don't have any talent. The Bears are tanking as we speak. It's why we were talking about a couple weeks ago, would Chicago consider trading a first-round pick for Justin... Or sorry, would they give up a first-round pick for Justin Fields as part of their, like, we're tearing this shit to the ground and building it back up. But at this point, they're going to build around Justin Fields. They've actually given him the leeway to do what he does best in the offense. Um, obviously, it's a first-year coordinator, and similar to what we've kind of seen with LSU and um, what that offense looked like, it looked really bad at the start. And then as you get more familiar with the pieces, with a brand-new coaching staff and a brand-new offense, it actually starts to come together to the point where, like, LSU goes out and beats Alabama. Are they a playoff team? No, but they're an offense that is one of the better scoring offenses in the country. Chicago puts this together, and granted, Miami is not a great defense. Surprisingly, Miami somehow flipped the script where now they have a top 10 offense for the first time in 25 years. That's a real stat, by the way. The Dolphins haven't had a top 10 scoring offense in 25 years, but this year they have a top 10 offense but they have a bottom 10 defense, whereas we used to think they had top 10 uh, defense and bottom 10 uh, offense. This year, Miami's kind of like completely flipped the script on it, but they're going to end up winning 10 games this year because they're actually a pretty good football team. Chicago doesn't have that. And even though Miami's defense is bad, Chicago still put up 32 points. They put up 29 against a great Cowboys defense. This is building into something. Similar to what I keep saying with the Falcons, I can see it building into something. Chicago's got to use the cap space and draft picks at their availability to really support Justin Fields the same way that the Eagles did and the same way that the Dolphins did because they have the quarterback on the rookie contract at this point. And we've seen Justin Fields look really great. Completion percentage is down, but I think that's the only thing that's keeping him from looking like Dak Prescott or keeping him from looking like Justin Herbert is that his completion percentage is down and the Bears haven't given him that support. And I think this offseason is going to be telling with Chicago on that. And I think you can start to see that because the Bears are going to have like the third most cap space in the NFL. So they can go do what the Jaguars did and just throw a bunch of money at mid-level free agents. But I think the more telling point is that they gave up Roquan Smith, who who was on an expiring deal. They were going to have to franchise tag him at the end of the year or sign him to an extension, which they clearly didn't want to do because he was already on his fifth year. Flipping Roquan Smith for two years of Claypool on a rookie contract, that's a greater sign that they're actually working towards building an offense for fields. Because now, like I said, Claypool at least kind of looks like a wide receiver one. So now you can go sign, I don't know, who's the best receiver available this year in free agency. I don't know who who it would be, but like you can go draft a receiver. You can go sign two more big name receivers similar to what the Jaguars did with Christian Kirk. You can actually spend a bunch of money. This I mean, Juju Smith-Schuster's available. That's one. Um, let's see who else is on this list. Uh there's not a whole lot actually, but <laughs> point still stands. You can you can go throw a bunch of money at people. Uh, Mac Hollins is available, I guess, if you want him. But like, you can go throw some money at some people and actually build out a solid receiving core at this point. It's just interesting to see what they do with with all the the resources that they have available at this point because. The most important thing is to build a supporting system around Justin Fields because now that we have more of a sample size, Justin Fields actually looks like he's going to be an NFL starter for 10 years. And that's something the Bears haven't been able to say since like maybe Jay Cutler. 
Justin Fields actually looks like he's going to be one of these starting quarterbacks in the league for 10 years. You're seeing the signs. You're seeing the process even on a shitty team. And that's got to be exciting for Chicago one way or another because even if it becomes like he's a tier three guy or he's always in that like group that we think of of Kyler Murray being in now, even though Kyler Murray's made two Pro Bowls, even if he only ends up being there or he ends up being in the space that Tua occupies himself in or he ends up in the space that Derek Carr occupies, that's better than anything the Chicago Bears have had. And that's really exciting because of the of the talent that Justin Fields possesses. And that's something you can't say about even Derek Carr. Justin Fields can do things on the football field that even Derek Carr and even Dak Prescott can't do just because of how freaking talented and how gifted he is at playing quarterback. And I'm glad that Chicago is at least letting him be that quarterback right now. I mean, it took a long time to get there. I don't even think it's like letting him or not letting him or whatever it is. He met Nagy wanted to go down four yards at a time with David Montgomery, but like it just took a long time to kind of piece it together. And I think the coaching change bought some time changing the offense bought some time they actually started supporting him a little bit Claypool wasn't even a big factor in this game I'm talking about just with the coaching staff and taking the time to figure this thing out giving the sample size to Justin Fields we're actually starting to see him look like he's going to be a quarterback in the NFL for at least 10 years I mean no let's say at least seven years 10 year starter might be one team might be two teams but 10 year starter in the league and that's something that we're going to build towards as we get a larger sample size on Justin Fields all right everybody it is time for us to award the philip rivers memorial kirk cousins purgatory award for week number nine for those of you who are new to the program the philip rivers memorial kirk cousins purgatory award is handed out weekly to the quarterback who spent their day down six no timeouts one minute to play and needing to go 75 yards in order to win a game doesn't matter if they succeeded or failed just being in the state of Kirk Cousins purgatory is something that I wanted to calculate and follow to see which quarterbacks do find themselves in this situation most frequently carrying the leaderboard this year by far is Trevor Lawrence he had three consecutive weeks of being in Kirk Cousins purgatory and for the first time this year, man, there were so, by the way, just, there were so many almost Kirk Cousins purgatory situations this week. Josh Allen had a mini Kirk Cousins purgatory. He was down three with 30 seconds and 80 yards to go. Uh, in the game with Kirk Cousins, Taylor Heineke was down three with 15 seconds to go, needing to go the length of the field. There were so many miniature Kirk Cousins purgatory situations this week. Even Tom Brady, 40 seconds down four, no timeouts. He ended up going down to win the game. There were so many of these situations this week, and sometimes we can't even find one. So it was cool that we basically had four situations this week that at least looked like Kirk Cousins purgatory, even if the numbers weren't exactly correct. But there was one team this week. One quarterback who exactly hit it on the nose with Kirk Cousins' purgatory. Exactly one minute to play, down seven points, 75 yards to go, with zero timeouts. One person hit it exactly on the nose this week. And so, Josh Allen, Heineke, Tom Brady, it would have been your guys' first... I guess Tom Brady had one last year, so it would have been Tom Brady's second. But each of those guys would have gotten their first this year 
but unfortunately we have a true Kirk Cousins purgatory this situation this week. And so we must award the Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award to Derek Carr and the Las Vegas Raiders sitting at 2-6 and six on the season. They were down 7. It also took a missed field goal by Jacksonville to make it possible, but they were down 7, no timeouts, 1 minute to play, needing to go the length of the field. They turned the ball over on downs, but that's less important. The state of being in Kirk Cousins Purgatory or Phillip Rivers Purgatory is more important than the result. Philip Rivers sometimes won, a lot of the time he lost, but he was always down six, no timeouts, length of the field to go with one minute to play. So congratulations to Derek Carr against Trevor Lawrence, I might add. Trevor Lawrence, who's probably going to run away with the Kirk Cousins purgatory title for this year. Trevor Lawrence, you get to win this week and watch Derek Carr sit in Kirk Cousins purgatory. All right, everybody, thank you for stopping in here to our NFL Monday podcast. One final thought here, since I have at least mentioned or touched upon all of the games here this week, whether it be our full conversations about the Bucks and the Rams, Miami and Chicago, Las Vegas and Jacksonville, we talked about Buffalo and the Jets and Josh Allen being injured. Protect Josh Allen at all costs. The regular season doesn't matter, Buffalo. Uh, the Chargers and Falcons, Chargers and Falconing, the Bengals reminding me just how fun their offense can be. Oh, I forgot to mention, P.J. Walker gave more yards to the Bengals than he did to the Panthers today. He had nine passing yards before getting benched, and he threw two picks that ended up going back for more than nine yards in the other direction. So P.J. Walker literally gave more yards to the Bengals today than he did to the Panthers I'm sure Baker Mayfield's going to start next week because this was the eventual regression to the mean that was required for P.J. Walker. There's one more game I want to touch on. It's not Green Bay and Detroit. It's really interesting that Green Bay's 3-6 and six and their season's basically over. I just don't know how to draw something interesting from it. So the game I want to talk about is the Colts and the Patriots. And I saved this for the very end of the podcast so that only those of you who really love this podcast are hearing it. Man, Colts scoring three points against the Patriots defense was just the most predictable shit in the world. I don't understand how the Patriots have the number five defense in the NFL this season. Bill Belichick's just a defensive genius, man. Like, that level of talent on that team being a top five defense is absolutely ridiculous this year. The Patriots might get a bullshit wildcard spot at this point over, like, maybe the Jets or something. The Patriots might get a bullshit playoff spot at this point, but the bigger testament is just that team is not good <laughs> and their defense is top five in the league because Bill Belichick is a defensive savant. And the Colts scoring three points with Sam Ellinger against that Patriots defense was just the most predictable outcome. I wanted it to be zero. <laughs> there was a chance it was going to be zero for most of the game. I'm just like, yeah. Every time it kind of like popped up on the red zone, because they didn't really show the Patriots offense all that much. Like I know Ramadre Stevenson had a big game, but like that's the only good fantasy player on the Patriots at this point with their stupid offense. But every time they showed the, the Colts score, I was just like, yeah, it makes sense. They have zero. Yeah, it makes sense. They have zero. Yeah, it makes sense. I want to know how many sacks there were in that game because they at one point I was watching the red zone channel in the afternoon and they showed the um the sack leaders for the day and two patriots had three sacks and i was just like jesus christ 
how did three how did two different patriots have three sacks in the game and then i looked it up nine times the colts got sacked nine times you want to know how many times the colts converted a third down zero they converted zero fucking third downs the colts were 0 for 14 on third downs they had 121 yards of offense Justin Fields by himself had as many yards of offense as the Colts and Patriots combined. Colts and Patriots combined had 324 yards of offense. Justin Fields had more yards of offense in that entire game. Colts had two yards per play. Colts had two yards a play. That was sad. And I wish it had been zero because I'm just like, yeah, this is the most predictable result you could have found. This is the most predictable result you could find on the entire day. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for stopping in NFL Monday. Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.